Mindfulness Mode 166. The public's mindset about their home has evolved so rapidly, particularly in the last, I'm going to say, seven to ten years, primarily driven by the internet. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am really excited to have James Swan on the line today. Hey, James, are you in Mindfulness Mode? I'm doing my best, Bruce. I'm doing my best. James Swan is an inspiring designer who built his career crafting classically influenced interiors. He began his career designing for a San Francisco architecture firm, later transferred to a position with a prestigious L.A. firm, and subsequently started his own firm in Beverly Hills. As an exquisite designer, James is truly mindful and can now be heard interviewing the world's leading designers, decorators, and architects on his own day podcast called Million Dollar Decorating. So James, I am really excited to have you here to talk with you. How are you today? All is well today. It's a beautiful summer day and feeling uh, feeling very grateful today. And so many people are enjoying beautiful interiors because of you. Let's talk about the mindfulness of the space around you. What does mindfulness mean to you, James? Um, Mindfulness to me is about um, sort of separating oneself from the busyness that the mind can often produce, all that inner chatter, um, and allowing, allowing oneself to see the bigger picture of what's going on, maybe to, to get a little distance from the chatter in your head and, and to see, see the larger picture of a situation and hopefully maybe maybe be able to take a few, uh, few steps that are a bit wiser and a bit more conscious rather than some of the unconscious steps that I know I'm at least famous for taking. Well, I'm glad you used the word conscious because that's a word that a lot of people come up with, including myself, because even when I was a young kid, I was very conscious of the space around me and the way it looked. And I, I could tell that I felt a certain way based on the way I felt. But let's talk about you. How did you experience that when you were a child? Do you still remember? Oh, very much, yeah. I I have very clear memories and even books that I sketched in of spaces that I experienced as a child, as a young kid. We were fortunate for a period um, to live overseas, and so sort of that range of spaces that I got to experience were um, were broadened a bit and amplified. So yes, I remember very clearly spaces that I've been in. Um, it sort of propelled me eventually into a profession that I still am part of doing design and decorating. Um, space is very important. The, the way we construct the environment in which we live can have um, an immediate and uh, lasting, very deep impact, not just on our overall well-being, but but even on our our mental construct from from day to day, from moment to moment. Uh, to me, there's nothing as marvelous as coming home to a space that has been 
well-articulated, thought through, uh, beautifully executed um, as, as, a re- as a retreat, um, sort of a, a bit of a hiding place from the crazy world. Uh, coming through that door at the end of the day is something that I look forward to rather than sort of dread. And it's because of, of the way the space is created. Let's talk about color, James. Color can really have a powerful impact. How does that impact affect you? Well, personally, I've, I've always been very clear about colors that I respond to. Um, <laughs> sometimes to my detriment, maybe. I, I remember very clearly, I think I was in the fourth grade, Mrs. Beers. Uh, we had, had an exercise in class where we were asked to talk about and present our favorite color. And my favorite color has always been and remains to this day black. And now you can argue that it is a color, that it is not a color, that we won't go into that. But um, I was, even as a child, fascinated by the calm and the tranquility that I associated with that color. And I shared my opinion with the class, and my fourth grade teacher thought it was quite scandalous that I was <laughs> fond of the color black as a fourth grader. She wrote a note to my mother to that effect. So, um, But uh, beyond that, um, I'm very clear about how color impacts me and the colors that I like to be around or to have around me. Um, because of the industry that I work in, um, when I had a, a, a design office in Los Angeles for many, many years, I made a very conscious decision to make it entirely white because we worked with so much color, working on clients' projects and doing specifications and scheming boards and presentations, that the idea of, of having there be any color in our work environment that would conflict with that didn't make any sense. So we just stripped all the color away. But I would go home at night and was pleased to be surrounded by soft blues, um, sort of pale butter colors. Um, my bedroom was a very, very deep green. Actually, it was almost bordering on black, going back to my preference there. Right. My dressing room and bathroom was black. Um, so I'm, I'm clear on the colors that I respond to and that I can relax in. And for me, that home was all about relaxation. Um, in working with clients, a, a big part of what I've done over the years is to explore the colors that they respond positively to and then find ways to work those colors um, in, in meaningful and important ways into the environment in their home. Well, I'm sure when you work with clients, sometimes it may be challenging to help them to be mindful so that they know and understand what kind of not only colors but contrasts and textures they enjoy. So how do you go about getting to the bottom of what a client truly enjoys if they themselves don't really know? Well, sadly, um, I'm not a mind reader. It would come (laughs) in very helpful if I could muster that trick, but I've never been able to do it. So it really ended up or ends up becoming um, a series of sort of in-depth probing conversations, questions. We spend a lot of time looking at imagery, whether that's in books or in magazines, online. Of course, that's very popular today. Um, and in the old-fashioned days, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, spending a lot of time going out and, and shopping, just spending time with clients going through um, showrooms, um, antique stores. It's, it's an incredible what you can learn about someone just watching them interact with a new environment. Uh, 
Um, I always used to tell my clients that I could also tell a lot about their color preferences if they would give me about 10 or 15 minutes in their closet. Um, because color that we put on our body tend to be colors that we're most comfortable with. And so even for, for men who may be in suit and ties predominantly during the day, if, if that's what your profession demands, um, maybe not so much in the suiting, but certainly in the ties, um, you can really tell a lot about a, a gentleman's color preferences by the color of his ties. So uh, there are all sorts of ways to pull that information out of clients, whether they were conscious of those preferences or not, once you begin to point out to them, you know, I find it so interesting that here in here in your closet or in that shop that we just came out of, you know, you responded positively four di four different times to four different items that were whatever color th they might have been, um, and it's it's a bit of a revelation sometimes for people because people don't always pay attention, people aren't always mindful of what those preferences are. That's true. And another area is light and the way light plays on the, the colors and the textures. Some people prefer a darker space. Some people want it to be flooded in light. How do you get to the bottom of that with your clients or even with yourself? How does light play a role? Well, for me personally, um, I, I guess much like my color preference, um, I've been clued into that since I was a child. I have always preferred uh, darker, moodier, sort of smoky interiors. Mm -hmm. uh, bright sunlight has never been attractive to me. I'm a very pale-skinned person, so the idea of sunbathing at the beach has never been, I mean, all I end up with is, is a sunburn if I do that. <laughs> so it doesn't hold a lot of allure to me. Um, but dark, richly colored rooms have always been appealing to me. And I've always tried to work those into my homes. But I've also known that you know, a steady diet of one thing can get sort of boring at times. So I've always tried to balance that in my own home with space that did allow light in, that was uh, softer in, a, in, in its tonal value, so that there was um, a high degree of contrast in the home. And that helped create um, a very pleasant rhythm as you moved through the house, going from uh, brightly lit, sun-filled spaces to deeper, richer toned, in, more intimate spaces. And I, I try to find that balance with clients in their homes too. Again, a steady diet of one thing can be really boring very quickly. So in a home to set up a series of rooms that modulate from bright, sun-filled, light, vibrant colored to rooms that are deeper, richer, more intimate. Um, it, it really sets up a, a beautiful story that you begin to tell as you move through a home. James, can you tell us about one of the most mindful, connected clients you ever worked with that you just felt you were on the same wavelength and you were able to help them create a space that was just magnificent? Well, I, I mean, honestly, Bruce, in the context of my professional life, other than a, one client that I had to fire at one point, <laughs> um, we ultimately got to that point with all of our clients. Some of them went kicking and screaming. Some of them were more participatory. 
And, and quite honestly, I've had clients who have just turned the reins over to me completely and abdicated all involvement. They just basically said, call me when the project is done and I can move in. So you have all sorts of different um, levels of client interaction and involvement in projects. But ultimately, our goal always was to do our homework, to listen and observe carefully um, what our clients responded to, what their needs, desires were, whether they were in touch with those or not, and then to create spaces uh, that adequately and, and appropriately reflected those desires, dreams, hopes, wishes, all of those things. So in the end, I'd, I like to think that all of our clients ultimately ended up with a project that mindfully reflected who they were and what they what they wanted to uh, experience at that particular moment in their life. Creating a comfortable, enjoyable space can just change the lives of people and make you feel so much more content and so much happier. And sometimes I think that people end up feeling so overwhelmed and they're busy and they've got they're trying to ch raise children and, and build a career and they don't stop to put themselves first and make sure the space they live in is the space they really need. How can they really achieve that if they feel that sense of overwhelm? Well, first hire a good designer. That's a good place to start. <laughs> um, I mean, as with anything in life um, where, where you have a deficiency, um, the wise manager or the wise person finds someone who can compensate for that weakness. So if you're overwhelmed by life, if you're overwhelmed by a busy career, and you find yourself living in a situation that you, you know hasn't been maximized, then it really does make sense to reach out and find someone, whether it's just you know, to bring a designer or a decorator in for a two-hour consultation and get some help on how to arrange the furniture and maybe a suggestion for a paint color or two, or someone that you hire and bring in on a much larger scale to really uproot the entire residence, make structural changes that are going to better the flow and better the way the space will be used. And then, of course, to put together a beautiful palette of furnishings and fixtures, art and accessories that can fill the house and sort of give you a, a turnkey experience. Anything in that spectrum is going to move you further down the path of having a, a more beautiful and thus more nurturing and meaningful and ultimately mindful space in which to live. And all of those things are good things. I know there have been a lot of changes throughout over the years, and I know that uh, you've probably seen a lot of things that have changed as far as how mindfully we interpret our environments and our surroundings. What are some of the changes you've seen that you could speak to? Well, I, I think in general, the public's mindset about their home has evolved so rapidly, particularly in the last I'm going to say seven to 10 years, primarily driven by the internet. We, we are now dealing with clients who have access to a staggering amount of information on product, on history, on provenance. If, if you just even limited it to visual, to images, they have 
vast catalogs that they can peruse and be inspired by. But I think that that has sort of a double-edged sword quality to it. For many, that's thrilling and exciting, but then they get to that tipping point where it suddenly becomes overwhelming and daunting. But going back to your original question, there is so much more information that clients have today um, that they come to a project much more prepared or at least prepared as, as best they can be prepared. Um, and I feel that clients are much more engaged and ready, ready to work together to create something that's unique and interesting in their home. James, I know that it's one thing to be a designer and to help people with their interiors, but you've written a book as well, and it takes a lot of mindfulness to do that. Can you talk about how you created your book and the steps you took toward its creation? Certainly. Uh, that was um, an unexpected adventure in my life. Um, I was at a dinner party one evening and had been asked by a guest at the table when I was going to come out with my book. I, it was a period of time where it seemed like all of my peers professionally were coming out with beautiful four-color coffee table books. And I, I don't know, I just answered sort of very honestly and maybe can too candidly, I said, you know, I think the last thing that the world needs is a, a book of my work just to sit on a coffee table and collect dust. I just didn't feel like that was um, necessary. And it wasn't something that I was interested in. And I got a lot, of, a lot of chiding about that and people kept pushing. And so certainly, you know, surely you'd, you'd want to write a book. And maybe it had a little bit of red wine at that point, um, <laughs> if I remember correctly. But I, off the cuff shot back with, well, if I wrote a book, it would be titled, oh, I don't know, 101 Things I Hate About Your House. <laughs> and there was much laughter around the table, and we giggled, and the dinner party went on. And at the end of the evening, a, a friend of mine who was a journalist, a professional writer, came up to me and said very seriously, she said, you know what you've done, don't you? And I said, oh, what have I done? I, I didn't mean to do it. I'll, I'll apologize right now. <laughs> she laughed. She said, well, you, you've come up with an amazing book title, which we now have to write. And that's pretty much what we did. Um, we went, began a, a, a journey, um, an adventure. Uh, I've never considered myself a writer. I've always enjoyed reading, but never considered myself or saw myself on that side of, of the, um, the effort. And suddenly I found, my, found myself faced with needing to come up with a concept, needing to come up with an outline, and then needing to actually sit down and write the book. Because at that point we had sold the concept. We had landed an agent who was excited about the project, and she was saying, okay, I need these things to sell this to a publisher. And so I went about it the way I... It's really the only way I know how to go about projects in my life, and that is uh, to sort of set up a structure and then just do the work. Um, and for me, that meant getting up every morning and sitting down at my desk, and for however long it took for me to crank out about 500 words, that's what I did every morning. And I did that for about nine months, um, give or take. It may, it may have been closer to 10 months. We went through a couple of different false starts on the direction that the book was going to take, the voice that the book was going to be written in. And then we finally we finally found a comfortable zone, and I kept 
chipping away at my 500 words a day, and pretty soon the book was done. Wow, that's exciting to to hear how you did that because so many people say to me, I wanted to do it, but I wasn't sure how to achieve it. But that takes me, I love that story, James. That takes me to humor in decorating. Mm. Tell me about some of the most humorous rooms or homes you've designed. Oh, well, I I hope none of them elicit too much laughter (laughs) from people. (laughs) But I I will say this, Bruce, I I think that there is always, in in my work, I certainly can't speak for everyone in the industry, but there has always been a certain degree of, I don't know, a willingness to not take myself too seriously. I I understand that it's it's important work to a client. They've hired us we have to deliver and those things are very important so i take that seriously but what we do is not brain surgery no one is you know going to their their life is not going to be saved because we picked out a beautiful lampshade or found just the perfect rug for the living room so there has always been for me um a sense of of levity about what I do, uh, not that what we do is actually funny, but just that we shouldn't take it too seriously. That it should be a fun process. I mean, my one of my early mentors in the industry was famous for saying that if the client isn't laughing when they've written the when they're writing the check, then you've not done your job. So there needs to be a joyfulness about the process. Yes, it is an investment. And sometimes it's a very large investment that people make in their homes. But the process should be one that they have so enjoyed that they not only are enjoying the fruits of your labor and their labor in a beautiful home or a beautiful room, but that they've enjoyed the process in a way that makes a lasting and beautiful memory for them. So have you ever done any designs for comedians and they they came to you and they they wanted you to do something that just seemed outrageous? I, I have worked for some comedians, uh, not in the firm that I had in Los Angeles, but in a firm that I worked for prior to that. I uh, was actually very fortunate to work with some some really rather amazing comedians. But the interesting thing that I learned in that experience was that off stage, they were not the same person as they were on stage. And the home that we created for them had very little to do with the persona that they were most well known for. Um, so it was a it was a very interesting dichotomy. I there was one client in particular who I was with uh, one evening as he was arriving at a studio to to do a television appearance. And because of our schedules, we were going to hook up afterwards and go and get some work done. And so I was just staying in the car going and going on, and we were going to come back and pick him up afterwards. And I literally watched the transformation as we pulled up to the studio as he prepared to become the character that he was most known for, this you know, very, very well-known comedian. And it was a physical transformation that he went through. He became someone else and he stepped out of the car and the cameras flashed and he was on and he went and he did his job and then the reverse happened on the return trip and suddenly it was just him again and we could go on and do our business. It was was remarkable, really was. That really is fascinating. James, I've worked in bullying prevention for over a decade and I've seen how mindfulness 
can really make a huge difference in the lives of adults or children who have been bullied. And I'm just wondering if you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference. Well, um, can we count most of my high school years as a single story? Really? Uh, well, up through up through the uh, the summer between my junior and senior year, I was a I was a very heavy child, and that persisted through through most of my high school years. The summer after my junior year, I made a concerted effort, and I, I did lose a lot of weight. And I started my senior year as trim as I had ever been, and. And it changed the dynamics for me, and I actually enjoyed my senior year. But those first three years of high school were just ridiculously painful. Mm. Uh, there were classes that I would be physically ill at the thought of walking into every single day, knowing that certain people were going to be there and they were going to say certain things and they were going to act in certain ways. And, and it was relentless for wow. all, all those years in high school. Um, and this, this was back in the dark ages before you talked about bullying and before the, it, was a, it was something that people were, were mindful of. For me, it was just something that I, I just endured. I mean, I was, I was a heavy kid. I wasn't particularly athletic. Um, while I hadn't come out at the time, I was gay and was perceived as being very effeminate. Um, yeah, it was not a good combination <laughs> to, uh, to sort of carry around through high school. Losing the weight, um, coming back into my senior year, having made a few friends, found, finding myself on the men's volleyball team at school, it, it really did change things for me, probably more in my head than anywhere else. But as I said, I did end up enjoying my senior year a lot. And with the amount of homophobia that is around today and certainly was then, how did you deal with that, and did you use mindfulness to deal with that? Well, if I did, it was by accident. Um, sadly, I, I hadn't read any of the books that I've read today, and I, I wasn't sort of maybe as prepared as I am today from my reading and from talking to people and you know, listening to people who are knowledgeable on the subject. I knew enough at the time to not take it personally, there was never the downward spiral where I found myself feeling that, okay, well, maybe they're really right and maybe I'm just kind of a horrible human being and maybe I shouldn't be even here. That, was, that wasn't my dynamic. My dynamic was, okay, I just have to get through this. I right. just have to endure. I have to figure out a way to get to the end of this experience and then well, I didn't know what would happen then, but it, would just, it seemed like things would have to get better. And ultimately, they did. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, the, the prejudices that we still see in our society today are so destructive. Um, and yes, mindfulness, I think, can have a, can play a part in helping those who are the victims of bullying get through the situation, but also uh, help our culture in general to see the, the dangerous uh, destructive qualities of bullying, wh whatever the focus of the bullying might be. And hopefully through that mindfulness, be willing to eradicate some of those behaviors from our social consciousness and um, maybe just care a little bit more about each other. Yeah, I think that's key. I think that really is to care more about each other. 
And I think mindfulness is a way of doing that. James, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, right. that would be my response. Right. Yeah, his, his book, The Power of Now, probably have read it 20 times and will probably read it another 20 times before it's all over with. Right, yeah, I love that book. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, James? It has been an equalizer for me, um, eliminating many of the lows. Um, not so much eliminating the highs, but just allowing me to find a balance a consistency that I've enjoyed in my life. Tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, if, if I forget everything else, if I can just remember to take one conscious breath, it's everything. It's everything. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? Um, well, all of Eckhart's books are amazing, The Power of Now, and, and he has many others. I've just come up, come on one recently by, um, let's see, his name is Joe uh, Dispenza, uh-huh. I think is the, the name, um, Making Your Mind Matter. Really good. I'm only about three quarters of the way through it right now, but learning a lot, very practical, very sort of lots of hands-on things that you can do to bring more mindfulness into your life. Can you share an app which helps you in some way be more mindful? You know, I know that they exist. I sadly don't use any. Right. I, I, I use a few on my phone, but apps aren't my thing. Sure. So don't sure. have one to share there. Sorry. Sure. No, that's fine. Well, James, it has been such an honor to speak with you today and to learn how mindfulness is important in your life. We didn't talk about meditation at all. Is meditation a part of your life? And if, if it is, can you share with us what it looks like in your life? I know that that meditation is important and can be powerful at this point moment in time. It's not something that is part of my daily routine or practice. Um, I think that that single conscious breath is about as close as I get to any sort of extended meditation. Um, Check back with me in a year. Maybe that will have changed. Okay. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. How could we connect with you, learn more about what you do, James? Website is probably the best place to go. I have a podcast right now myself, um, which is called Million Dollar Decorating. And the website is milliondollardecorating.com. You can find all about us there. So Mindful Tribe, be sure to check that out. It's an excellent podcast and I highly recommend it. So all the best to you, James. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Bruce. A pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.